So welcome back, back again to the <laughs> of your business podcast. Uh, I got a super special guest, uh, like what, over a year ago we tried this? Yeah, something like that. Something like this. And then as you guys know, I lost a bunch of recordings. Uh, so she has been very patient with me, my move, and after months, we got her back on the podcast. So I know that this is going to be a super special treat. So Serena, welcome back once again. Thank you. To the None of Your Business podcast. Awesome. So who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so I used to run my own brand experience agency for 18 years called Tigers Events. And I sold that last February after trying to sell it for a couple of years during the pandemic, I actually listed it for sale about two to three weeks before our first lockdown and good luck selling an events company in the middle of a pandemic. So I held on to it that entire time and ultimately sold it. My priorities shifted um, having a family and things like that. So I wanted to have more time and more work-life balance and then also transition over into real estate. So I got my real estate license in the middle of the pandemic and it was complementary to all of the real estate investing that I'd been doing. So I kind of just was able to finally move forward by getting the business off my plate. Mm, that's awesome. Now you have a book called The Accidental Entrepreneur. That I do. <laughs> so let's take us down that lane. Yeah. So I signed up for a real estate education company back in 2018 and they had a woman there selling a writing retreat. And I was like, you know what, my whole life, people had always said to me, got to write a book one day because my childhood was so crazy. And there's a lot of things that happened when I was quite young. And I think that just kind of put that little planted that seed when I was quite young, you know, eventually I'd have to tell my story and hopefully it resonates with people and gives them, you know, some strength and motivation and things like that based on the obstacles that I faced. And basically it's kind of part memoir, part business book, because I think that all the challenges I experienced when I was growing up kind of paved that path into entrepreneurship. And, you know, as the book is titled, The Accidental Entrepreneur, I never had any plans to be an entrepreneur, but the opportunity presented itself. And at that time, you know, it was almost more of like a, a survival skill kicking in. Like I had graduated from university. I wasn't getting hired in my chosen field as a broadcaster. So this just presented itself. So I decided to seize the opportunity. And then uh, the woman that founded the company decided to leave about four years in. So we went through a buyout and I was only 26 years old and I just bought my first house, <laughs> but we kind of went through that in the middle of the recession and, you know, it chronicles all of those different experiences and lessons uh, that I learned along the way. Mm, I love it. I love it. So, you know, we all go through trials. We all go through tribulations. We all have a background. It doesn't matter what our background is. We all go through struggles. Yeah. And you sitting, well, kind of in front of me. Uh, you know, you were able to overcome your struggles, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember, but like, I'm a recovering heroin addict, like oh, overdosed, um, and woke up in the ICU. And then when I woke up, I was like, I need to do something different with my life. And, you know, because of the actions that I took, I'm talking to people like, you now. Yeah. So, you know, if there is a young woman or man out there 
that is trying to overcome their struggles and they don't know like where to look or which way to start and they want to get into like maybe the real estate like what do you if you could go back to your younger self mm-hmm. what do you think you'd tell that younger version of yourself yeah well I, I think what was very clear to me early on and I even opened the book that way is that I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth but it tarnished so in the sense that I was kind of born into this family like you know perfect nuclear family, my mom, my dad, my brother, and then everything kind of shattered when I was four years old and just continued to kind of go downhill for many years. And I think it was just very clear to me that nobody's going to offer or like do anything for me. Like I was the opposite of entitled. Like I knew that if I wanted to make something of myself, like I had to put in the work, I had to find the opportunities. You know, as I got older, I was always a person that had like four and five different jobs, you know, just trying to make ends meet and get ahead and stuff like that. So it's kind of like the, um, you know, the analogy that you've got two siblings that are both born to an alcoholic. And it's like, why do you drink? Because my dad did. Well, why don't you drink? Because my dad did. You know what I mean? And you kind of can be faced with those things where you could dwell on the issues that you're experiencing and, and wallow in them, but that's not going to help me. Like, I'm only going to be the one suffering here. So I just knew that if I was going to, you know, be the first person in my family to go to university, like if I was going to achieve these things for myself, and I didn't know maybe what form that would take, I just knew that I had to put myself forward and, you know, it doesn't mean you necessarily see everything through, but I would be willing to try anything once, you know, and I just tried a lot of different things. And that's kind of how I ended up in events. You know, I didn't intend to run an events company for almost 20 years, but I was doing it part-time through school. And it just, one thing kind of led to another and the same thing with real estate. Like you don't know what you don't know, but I had a coach that encouraged me to start investing and at that point, I, I was just always saving the extra money. And she's like, no, like this is a waste. You need to put that to use. So she kind of showed me some opportunities and stuff like that. So I think for someone that's at that crossroads where maybe they don't know what they want to do, I'd say definitely try to find people who are where you want to be because they're going to help you get where you want to go faster. Hopefully they'll reduce the number of mistakes or the impact of those mistakes that you might otherwise make on your own and just be persistent. Like, I think you just have to throw yourself out there and just try to get involved as much as you can. That's awesome. I love that. Love, you know, just surround yourself with people who have done what you want to do and model their success Mm -hmm. and keep going. Uh, That's, that's like one reason why I'm in Indianapolis right now. So it's, uh, they're, these people are doing the things that I want to do. Mm-hmm. So I was like, Hey, let me come work for free for you and yeah. figure it out. So, yeah. uh, and like, I've, you know, I've started businesses before I've done X, Y, Z and you know, I, I fail and then I, okay, well, brush my shoulders off and try something else. Yeah. Yeah. So keep, yeah, I love that. Uh, Wow. Sorry. I okay. don't know if I was going to be a sneeze or a cough or what. But... <laughs> Something's coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, you know, you um, are about to start a podcast, then invest. I forgot. Invest yeah. Inspired to invest. Inspired. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and if you had like, I know there's more than three tips on how to get capital you know there's a process but mm-hmm. for people who are out there and you know they're like how am i going to afford this million dollar house like we were talking about before we mm-hmm. started recording do you you have any advice 
on like tools, resources, anything like that, that people who are in a tight spot or maybe not in a tight spot that could start moving towards that process. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned. Um, when I started investing, I wasn't familiar with the concept of private lending and other people's money and joint ventures and stuff like that. So I've actually been more on the other side of it as a lender. And it's not that I necessarily had like boatloads of money in savings, but I did have a large home equity line of credit. So I was able to use access to the money that, you know, when I started at 3%, I would be loaning it to investors at 20%. And I'm basically making that difference. Right. So Uh, more often than not, investors will lean on private money for a few reasons. Uh, One, the bank doesn't like them. Um, Two, the bank can be slow. So it could take them many, many months to get the money that they need. Um, And they can just get the money faster by going the private route. And in a lot of cases, people will actually raise private money for the down payment on a property and then traditionally finance the rest. Um, Sometimes they'll joint venture. So for example, they might be willing to be the working partners. So they'll find the property, maybe they'll have renovations done or they'll manage it. And then you'll have the money partner. So it's someone that has money, they want to put it to use, but they don't have the time or the expertise to go out and find a property, let alone manage it or renovate it or something like that, right? So there are a number of different strategies where people can kind of come in and offer that as a solution and say like, I can do this and this will be kind of my part in the relationship. And then on the flip side, you've got the, either one investor, it could be many investors. So it could be more of a syndication. And I'd say that's um, what I'm typically seeing more often than not. And sometimes it could be on a single family home, or you could literally be borrowing a a huge apartment building. So you're going in and basically offering cash for keys to get tenants out. And then you're renovating them, forcing appreciation of the building. So you can take money out tax-free on a refinance. And then you're also improving the profitability of the building by increasing the rents. So that's a very, very popular strategy. And then now because of the housing shortage, land development has become very, very significant. And the margins are also very big for investors and things like that. So I found that a lot of people that were kind of renovating the apartment buildings have now moved over to land development because they're seeing that not only as a need, but something that they can kind of control the process a little bit more. And and the margins are just very, very significant. (laughs) So I know people have gone from you know, one end of the spectrum to the other at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm from Montana and the housing market is short and it in Bozeman, uh, especially because the show Yellowstone came out, uh, everyone wants to move there, <laughs> but like you drive and it's like, take a right, huge apartment buildings, take a left, how like it's ridiculous like it's like flooded and you are on a wait list to get into that yeah it's it's crazy um so yeah i it blows my mind like you're in toronto right yeah i'm about 30 minutes east of toronto and it was pretty insane all the way through the pandemic and then as soon as mortgage rates started to increase everything got very quiet (laughs) for about a year and then with the spring market, everything's kind of exploded again. So everyone's back in multiple offers and things selling over list price and stuff like that. And I think it's just a matter of supply and demand. So even if they try to control inflation with interest rates, the reality is that there's just not enough homes for the number of people that, first of all, are here, but also the number of people they're bringing here. Like they've got very steep immigration policies to bring in like 500,000 people a year over the next few years. So it's just, I don't know where they're going to go. <laughs> so we'll see yeah. how that goes. 
bringing people in so i don't know like i got some friends in canada and they're like the it's super like super uh restrictions like you like they're not letting anyone in blah 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 like is that still it doesn't how it seem is? that way <laughs> that yeah. like okay I, yeah i mean i don't know if it's just to drive the economy because people aren't having large enough families to support it or maybe people are just choosing not to do certain jobs like so maybe they need to bring in people that are willing to do some of those. Like, I'm not sure really what the driving force yeah. behind it is. Obviously the government's got their plan. So. Yeah. What, so in Canada, would you say that there's a recession happening? It's hard to say. I mean, if anything, it's just, we're seeing just such considerable increases across the board. Like gas is high. Food is exceptionally high. Um, housing is obviously high, at least here. I'm not going to say that that's the same all across the country. Like if you're in the prairies or in the East coast, you know, housing is much, much less expensive. You can still buy a house for maybe a hundred thousand dollars in some very select areas where here it's like, probably can't even buy a shed for a hundred grand. Okay. So yeah. it's just based off the information that you told me, it seems like it's very similar to what's going on. in the Yeah. States, you've got right? your ebbs and flows around the country. Yeah. Like Montana housing market's ridiculous and then i come mm -hmm. to indiana and i'm like wow that house in montana would you could buy the front door for that price yeah, <laughs> like, yeah 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 so tell us about your book yeah yeah so it's kind of um like the the tagline for it is turning tragedy into triumph to embrace my destiny in entrepreneurship so it basically opens in the beginning and i think a lot of people you know, not a lot of people necessarily, but there were some people that said, you can't have all this in the same book. Like you have a memoir or you have a business book. And I was like, well, no, cause it wouldn't make sense. Like you can't have one half without the other half. Right. So I think just by setting that tone early on. So it basically goes through, you know, how my parents separated. And then a year later, my brother died in a tragic accident at home because he was left unsupervised. Um, and just kind of all the fallout from that, um, you know, and bouncing around a lot between family and then eventually with like an ex-boyfriend and, you know, just all of those different struggles and stuff like that. And, you know, seeing my mom struggle was really my biggest motivation that I just knew at a very early age, like, I don't want to make the decisions that she's made. And, you know, I can't maybe relate to some of those things, like losing your whole family and then the loss of a child and stuff, you know, but I think there's definitely decisions that she could have made that could have improved her situation um, you know, so again, I just, I really always struggle, saw her struggle, like financially, emotionally, and just go through these different challenges. So for me, that was probably my biggest motivation to succeed and, and to do things different. Cause I just didn't want to go through the things that she had gone through. Yeah. So do you remember like how your mindset was at like observing that as, you know, a teenager or young child, yeah. um, like, and how did you get through the day-to-day -to, -day to get to where you are today? I think that I've always been very, very practical. So for example, um, I come from like a very large family of smokers and I'm one of just a few people that never started. And I remember I, I came up with like a little plan for my mom, like, well, if you stop smoking, like one less cigarette every day, like by the end of a month or two, like you'll have quit smoking or adding up how much money she spent on the cigarettes. And I was probably like eight years old. Or something like this, right? So I think I would look at things like, okay, well, if you have no money, why are you wasting money on cigarettes? Or why are you doing this? And, you know, just at a young age could kind of see, see that. And I was like, well, 
why would I ever smoke? It's like burning your money, like literally, <laughs> you yeah. roll it up and burn it. So I just, I think I was very practical seeing some of those things. And I would always question like why people did the things that they did. And even with, you know, my dad, and my stepmom that I lived with, I think I would observe some of the things that they, they did that just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So it's not like it was it was taught. I would just kind of observe everything and always kind of question like, well, why would they do this? <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm not going to say I made perfect decisions because everyone can be impulsive or emotional at different times. But I think I've always tried to be very practical, like with just um, how I spend my money, how I save, how I budget, um, how I make decisions and stuff like that. And, you know, there can definitely like think with my head and try not to let the heart interfere too much um, for those kinds of things. But um yeah, I think I just learned a lot from the people around me in the the way that I didn't want to live my life. You know, I everyone's an example of what you want to be or what you don't want to be. Uh, everyone's a teacher and a student. I I like that, but I find it very fascinating that as a child you're like, no, why am I wasting money? Like. Usually we learn our, you know, financial literacy habits through our family, mm -hmm. but which you did learn it through your family. It just, you did the exact way. opposite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is, yeah. wow. Um, that blows me away. Yeah, like, it's, it's super cool. cool. Strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's usually like, okay, if my parents have bad spending money, then I'm going to have bad spending because they don't know any different. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like, I mean, you know, it's hard for me to have sympathy or empathy for people that cry about having no money, but they drink too much. They smoke too much. They order, skip the dishes all the time. And it's like, well, you can't complain about that. And then say, oh, like, look at her. She's going on another trip or she's doing, I'm spending a lot less money probably on that trip. When you factor in just your daily habits, you know, even when I had my own business, I always brought my lunch to work and I don't drink coffee. So I never picked up the $5 coffees. And my employees would be out getting coffee every day, would be out picking up lunch, not necessarily every day, but most days, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just like, they could probably even look at me sometimes to say, well, oh, she's going away again, or she's doing this or that. And it's like, well, no, like, I would rather put that money towards those things. Like, food's expensive, <laughs> you know, like, but it was just, I could go and do that. Of course, maybe I'd rather go pick it up, but it's just, it was easier and less costly to do that. So it's just, I think there's a lot hidden in your daily routine that can really make the world of difference. And it's kind of like the latte factor and stuff like that. So just a, like a very rudimentary thing. I think a lot of times people just don't see where, you know, where the holes are and like where they're losing those money, like that money day to day. Yeah. Yeah. But you have a valid point. You know, I like $6 for eggs is really high, but seeing the same people who are complaining that, you know, 12 eggs cost $6. Well, you're going to Starbucks and maybe getting a three ounce cup of coffee with all the ice for twelve fifty or whatever the fucking price is. Yeah, yeah, or twenty bucks for lunch or like whatever that is, right? Yeah, yeah, like it, yeah. you know, like twenty bucks, like might not seem a lot in the moment, but if you add it up, twenty bucks a day, yeah, like that's a pretty decent chunk of change, especially if yeah. you're broke. Yeah, yeah, I'm very experiential in the sense that I would rather spend money on like a three hundred dollar dinner once or twice a year, then have like that lunch every day or something like that. Right. And even when I had my own business, like one of the best things was, um, 
my bank manager's like, hey, have you heard about our travel visa card? And it was the best thing I ever did. Like I've probably redeemed like 60 or $70,000 worth of travel because I put everything on it, personal and business, and it accumulates so quickly. So there's a lot of times I would take trips that, you know, maybe it could be $6,000, but it would only cost me a thousand because I'd offset the rest in point. So even mm -hmm. just trying to be strategic, like take advantage of the things that you can, right. So that, you know, you can still have those experiences, but it's not costing you what it would otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very valid point. Yeah. <laughs> you might as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, you know, spend, if you're broke, like you spend less, you don't spend more than what you make because then yeah. you'll just be more broke. Yeah. I think that's a, the biggest thing I've been surprised by as a realtor to see, um, how high people's mortgages are. So there have been different instances where someone could have bought the house for, you know, 200,000 or 300,000. And now it's been 10 years or 20 years and their mortgages are double what they paid for their homes 10 to 20 years ago. So I had like a senior couple I was helping last year and they bought for like, say 200,000, their mortgage is four. So yes, they're making money because there's equity in the home, but it was like, what did you spend all that money on? <laughs> like your mortgage should be gone, you know? So I think I was just surprised because it was kind of that example of the bad debt. And, you know, I think there are some people that can refinance or in my case, like use a HELOC for investing purposes, which is good debt because it's like income producing debt. But there are, I'd say it's more common to see people that, you know, they had a certain lifestyle maybe that they wanted to, to lead. And, you know, I feel like that's something I've been very, very surprised by just in that capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I'm sure it didn't like come natural to you, like learning, cause we all have a learning process. If, if financial literacy, good financial literacy just came natural to you more, more to you. I'm struggling from never having money. <laughs> yeah. But like, how, um, do you have like maybe any like tips or advice for somebody who maybe goes and spends the 750 on coffee every day or something like that like maybe yeah, to break I mean, that habit i like to track everything so it's probably more than most people have but i have like a very very detailed <laughs> spreadsheet um again because i do a lot of investing so i need to track like all those payments coming in i track what kind of goes out but then i also track the discretionary spending so i can literally tell you that you know since 2008 like our grocery spend has more than tripled. Like we were spending an average of six to 700 a month back then. And now like there's not a month that goes by that we're spending less than 2000. Wow. And I've literally just tracked all of that. Right. And it's not like we're eating more, <laughs> like we barely go out to eat. So it's literally just got to be food class and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Right. But um, I personally do like to track things just so I can see where the money is going or if a month was high, like what the cause of that was. Um, just to kind of see where things are going. And, and I will shop at the less expensive grocery stores and I'll buy things on sale. Like, you know, I don't believe in wasting that money. Right. But then you can have those little splurges from time to time because you're saving the money incrementally on, on everything the rest of the time. Mm. So then you just got to be, pay attention, be aware of what you're doing day to day. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I like that, uh, a lot. That's, I like that a lot. So, uh, when you do go on a splurge or maybe you and your husband and you have a daughter, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Got a three and a half year old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you're not, you know, working, investing, like, what do you like to do like in your free time? 
Yeah. I, I don't have as, nearly as much free time as I used to, because uh, obviously having my three and a half year old, that's a different dynamic, but um, we inherited a cottage property in the last year and a half. So we do spend a lot of time there and it's only about an hour North of where we are now. So we, we spend a lot of time there. Um, if I could, I would definitely travel more like during COVID we didn't travel at all. And yeah, then yeah. my daughter brought COVID home from daycare and we're like, that's it. <laughs> Like, you want to go away? So then we've gone on three trips in the last year uh, since that happened. And we've got one like later on this year. So I definitely would prefer if we're going to spend money like that, I'd rather spend it on things uh, like experiences rather than things. Um, so, you know, took her on a Disney cruise and then we took her to Mexico. And it's just stuff that, you know, she's obsessed with, like looking at the pictures and the videos from those trips. And hopefully it's something that she'll remember all those things as she gets older and you know, even yesterday I picked her up a little early from daycare to go to the zoo because it was a nice day and, you know, just try to take her to experience all of those different things and, and definitely like to have nice dinners out occasionally, like, but by occasionally it's probably like three or four times a year, like a really nice, like unique dining experience or something like that. So. Mm. That's awesome. I, I, you know, it, you work hard, but then you also plan to have a good time and mm -hmm. like exp your three-year-old daughter is going to love that. Like loves yeah. that. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, I think I, the time that you invest, right? Like, you know, obviously there's the things and the toys and all that, but I think, I think cause we're like one of the last among our friends to even have kids. Like we're very lucky that we were gifted a lot of hand-me-downs. Yeah. So many things that she has that we would have been like, oh, we're not going to spend money on that. But then someone like gave us a house, gave us a kitchen, gave us like you know, just all these different things. Right. So she has a lot in that sense, but like a lot of it are just handed, handed down from like friends with older kids and stuff like that. Yeah. Which I think that's like way better because a three-year-old is going to like, Oh, I love the, in my opinion as a three-year-old is going to love this, you know, $50 toy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. it's just sitting in the closet or wherever. Yeah. So, okay. Hey, hand me down. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. And then, you know, whatever that money goes to an experience, a car, college, whatever. Yeah. So, and everything that we sell. So after we're done using those items, like we will sell them on marketplace or something like that. And all that money goes into an account for her. So it's just, we don't just use it to spend. So she's already got, I don't know, 12 or $15,000 in savings. And ideally I'm going to put that into a higher yield investment soon. <laughs> so, you know, I just want to make sure that we're smart with that. That's awesome. A three-year-old has twelve or fifteen thousand dollars in a bank yeah. because you guys are being strategic. That's that's really cool. Parents, listen up. <laughs> listen up. Oh yeah. man, especially like if the housing market's like there's gonna be a crash eventually. Yeah. But you know, she's gonna be ready. You guys are, you know, putting a nice cushion, like 10, like you know, that's not a big chunk of change. Well, that's a yeah. big chunk of change. Yeah. So yeah. anyways, um, oh my gosh, I, I'm so sorry. What's wrong? I literally like, I had a, I was just thinking of something that I want to ask oh, you as you were saying that. it. <laughs> it's okay. It's like, oh, I came up. Yeah. And that's okay. I was actually on the radio about a week or two ago and I had said the same thing. I started talking. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm trying to say right now. Yeah. And I just stopped. I'm like, I just lost my thought. And then it came back like a minute later. But yeah. Happens. Yeah. 
it was you were saying something oh i want to ask about that and then i no all right uh so if you know you were talking about leveraging other people's money Mm -hmm. if somebody was wanting to do that yeah how do you like how would somebody like approach that situation because like they might be fearful or they don't know or do you have any advice on that yeah, I mean, obviously, you're not just going to walk into it blindly. Like, I think the first step is going to be educating yourself. Um, I'm part of a one particular real estate education company. I joined a mastermind last year. Now I've joined like another education company specifically to focus on either land development or multifamily. So, you know, you need to make sure that you educate yourself right. You get in the community around investors so that you can find people that would be interested in that. And then I think beyond that, it's just setting yourself up properly from like a legal and tax perspective. So whether that's hiring a securities lawyer, um, you know, a, a real estate focused accountant, you want to make sure that you have things set up properly. Cause the last thing you want is to get in trouble with the securities commission or something like that, because you handled something incorrectly. So I think you've got to be very mindful of, of that. Um, a lot of people that have been doing it for a little while now are starting mutual fund trusts and things like that so that they can take registered funds from people, because oftentimes people have these you know, large investments that are sitting in like a RSP or a TFSA here in Canada. So your tax-free savings account or your registered retirement savings plan. Um, So they can put these into higher yield opportunities and be making like 25% a year. Um, So it's much more significant than what you get at the bank. You know, maybe that seven or 8% less fees, like who knows what that is, right? So I think there is, um, there are far more attractive opportunities out there, but you've got to make sure that you've got things set up properly. Um, And even if you can partner with someone, like there are in some cases, like I'm, I was trying to decide even my next investment. And I was like, I know that I don't have a ton of time. I'm not just going to like suffer and struggle through burying a giant apartment building by myself. (laughs) So why would I do that? Like, I know people that do that. They have the systems, they are experts in it. And maybe if I can come in as a financial partner and I can learn from them and learn along the way, um, then maybe I would consider that down the road. But at least in the meantime, I can put other money to use in terms of assets and stuff like that. So I think you just have to make sure you, you got to be super careful. Like if you're using someone else's money, like it's going to be your, your reputation on the line if you don't deliver, or if you lose it or something like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That would be yeah, losing somebody else's money would not be good yeah. at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're in the news sometimes. Like there are a couple of instances, even actually one company I met at the first investor summit I went to five years ago and they were all over the news because they went bankrupt. Um, it was a company out of Saskatchewan. And I had a call with them after this summit just to understand what they're doing. And their model didn't make any sense to me. And I said like, well, why would I put money into it? And then it's like, they kind of took ownership of the property in a couple of years. And like, this doesn't make any sense to me, <laughs> but they obviously had a lot of investors and I think their company is worth between 50 and 60 million and they went bankrupt and they literally just had a zoom call with their investors and were like, we fucked up. Yeah. So I don't know how that happened. I don't know if they just scaled too fast, if they didn't have the right management set up. Like, I don't understand like all the ins and outs, but you have something like that. And what's unfortunate is there's like hundreds, if not thousands of other investors doing really great work, but you have this one situation where someone didn't handle it properly and it makes other investors scared. So I think you just have to be careful, like know who you're partnering with, do a lot of due diligence, 
I think my biggest tip for anyone is just diversify as much as possible. Like I'd rather work with 20 different companies and do like their minimums than work with two and put in like everything I have. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think you just have to insulate your risk as much as you can by, by taking a different approach. Mm, I love it, man. You are just dropping so many bombs. I wish I had like <laughs> something to explode because man, this is just really good guy. Really good information advice people listen up so if they wanted to know more about you uh where can they connect with you yeah so i I seem to be like a serial instagram page producer (laughs) but i have my real estate um page that's serena holmes realtor and i share a lot of like news and tips specific to buyer sellers and investors um, I have one dedicated to my book. So that's under Serena Holmes author. And as you mentioned, I'm starting a podcast. So it's called Inspired to Invest. Um, so that page is Inspired to Invest podcast. And it launches officially next Wednesday, June 7th. Oh, awesome. Awesome. This coming. <laughs> this coming. Well, this will be out next Monday. So. Uh, yeah, next Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. So the Wednesday after that. Guys, when you're done listening to this, go follow that show, subscribe. Well, I guess on Wednesday because it well, <laughs> not out yet. Yeah, but Soon. it's coming. Cool, awesome. Uh, Serena, I got one last question for you. Sure. What is your message to the world? Uh, I think we rise by lifting others. Mm-hmm.